Who can say where the killer roams, where the blood flows? It's slaying time. Slay away. Slay away. Slay away. Hey, Slayers. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of Slay Away. I'm Anola Lugosi, and I'm here to chat about lore, gore, true crime, and every kill in between. This episode is part of a continuing series of interviews this month celebrating pride with queer creators while exploring queer representation in horror. And I'm joined today by Rebecca Galt around the campfire. Uh, Rebecca, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Are you ready to chat about all things queer horror with me? Oh, absolutely. Perfect. I'm really excited and I'm I'm so excited to have you here. Um, for those that don't know, Rebecca is an up and coming academic in the horror community with a specific focus on horror literature and the fantastic. Um, Rebecca is a recent graduate of the University of Glasgow and their final year dissertation focused on politics of the vampire figure. And that's something I'm really excited to dive into with you. Um, Rebecca's role within the horror community um, is that uh, they are an academic and a scholar really focusing on fantasy and supernatural aspects of the genre and hoping to widen uh, that scope into cross-media studies, which I think is fantastic. So Rebecca, again, welcome. Um, and I'd love to dive a little more into um the dissertation that you did about the queer politics within the vampire figure, because I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, so the proposal for my um, end of year dissertation was talking about the idea of queer radicalism and homonormativity with the vampire. So basically, I took like four different texts from a big range of time periods and talked about what this figure of the vampire meant for the queer community at that time. And that was it was super interesting to see how like the view of the vampire had changed over that time. Um, and especially how this figure became less monstrous as we moved into a more modern time period. And what that kind of meant for a queer community in the sense of trying to assimilate. So that was the, my kind of main focus on it. And it was really interesting to dive into. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me because when you think about it, you go from like the Nosferatu figure to what we'll say the Lestat figure, right? And then even beyond that, as we get into films like The Hunger with um, this um, bisexual vampire character and um, some other things like that. So it's really interesting. And I love that you used the vampire figure to do that. And actually, it's a perfect figure for queer politics and studying, you know, how even the shift in society has changed from this uh, monstrous representation of the queer individual to now, um, you know, people, not all people, but <laughs> <laughs> acceptance um, uh, of, you know, queer individuals and um, in society in general. But it's interesting how you kind of put that up against the vampire figure. So, um, are there uh, what figures in particular? Were there any particular ones that you had studied um, or well, dug into, and what time periods? I'm curious. I was mostly focused on 19th and 20th century, just because there was such a a constraint and word limit. I could have talked for ages and ages about it, but unfortunately, um, but my main focuses were on Carmela and Dracula, and then into like that Lestat and Lewis, because Lestat and Lewis are obviously iconic and then I talked briefly about the Gilda stories by Jill Gomez which is just a, a wonderful book I really highly recommend it um but yeah they all had very different 
possessions on this. Um, and ultimately, I kind of ended up coming to a different conclusion to the one that I'd expected, which I thought was great. Um, uh, it was just an interesting study of what that meant. So with Dracula especially, I I know quite a lot about Dracula. It was my intro text into like horror literature. Um, so I did a lot of work on that and the sort of queer subtexts throughout it, which is recently kind of being exploited in adaptations, although I always have opinions about Dracula adaptations. <laughs> Um, I would love to know what you think about, I guess, the big one of the 90s, right? The Bram Stoker's Dracula adaptation that starred Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder um, and Keanu Reeves. Yeah. <laughs> People give him a lot of a really hard time for his performance in that film and his accent. But I was like, it's not that bad. Yeah, the accent wasn't that bad. And his performance was fine. Like, <laughs> and So a lot of people point out the... Um, the three sort of seductress uh, vampires and and um, how uh, there's obvious uh, bisexuality or lesbianism with with those three, but I think there's definitely other queer undertones throughout the entire film um, and the novel as well. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts on that are. Yeah. So with the sort of Dracula's three brides, as they end up getting called. Uh, the stance that kind of is widely taken nowadays is that they act as a stand-in for Dracula himself. So while he never explicitly gets to bite Jonathan, which is, of course, like the coding for all of that sort of queer activity, um, they are the sort of acceptable heterosexual stand-in for that. And that's his sort of sublimated desire of him wanting to be part of Jonathan's life like that. And it's really interesting because in the book there's a whole thing of how if Dracula interrupts and is like, no, this man is mine, and the brides are like, you never, you have never loved, like, you are incapable of love. So for it to be framed through that, I think is a really interesting way of sort of making it obvious that this isn't strictly about preying on Jonathan. There is a sort of is like a corrupted, monstrous version of love, but all the same, it's what's there. And I think to an extent you get that in the film, but the film kind of leans a little bit more to this um, bisexual lesbianism thing with the brides, which is fine as well because there's definitely evidence for that in the text. But I think it's very interesting that a lot of the time they're just a stand-in for Dracula's own queer desires. Yeah, and I don't think you really pick up in the film on his desire for Jonathan. It's very, um, I think that character, to me, it felt um, very heteronormative. <laughs> but um, that what was interesting, especially with his interaction with like the Lucy character in the film, is um, I was curious if he was trying to take her as another bride. It just didn't exactly work out that way. Um, or if it was just a way to kind of, um, in the film specifically, um, mess with Mia a little bit because um, it's strange. He takes on um, the form that he takes on. When I was younger, when I was a child, I thought that he was a werewolf, but I was like, this doesn't make sense. He's a vampire. <laughs> but I realized that it's he's a bat, um, like on all on on you know standing erect on two legs in like sort of this human bat like form without the wings, and he can really appear in any form that he wants to, um, and it's all part of his uh, manipulation. 
and the illusion that he creates. So, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was interesting. Especially in the film with the ad, the whole like Mina being like, I don't know if the implication is that she's like his reincarnated wife. And that's kind of. I think so. Yeah, Yeah, reincarnation. And it's kind of a thing that's carried through into quite a lot of adaptations now, like the, oh, was it 2013 NBC did a, a TV version of it and they kind of used that trope as well and I'm like it's odd that that's something that's kind of arisen because I think it does it kind of makes it a little bit more heteronormative because it, it gives him a focus on Mina specifically whereas oh yes Mina, Mina not Mia sorry Mina <laughs> I always want to call her Mia um <laughs> But I thought in the film, there seems to be this like really intimate relationship between um, Mina and Lucy. So I thought I felt I felt like there were some um, there was some queer subtext between the two of them. Yeah, and there's definitely quite a lot of that in the book as well. Um, They have a a whole section where they're writing letters back and forth and it's very intimate and sweet and Lucy makes comment of loving Mina the way Jonathan loves her and it's like okay well <laughs> good for you I guess <laughs> but, yeah it was interesting because I you definitely pick up on it from Lucy in the film you don't really pick up on that return from Mina in the film but it's like there it's it just kind of sits on uh, I don't know unearthed <laughs> if you will so um yeah, and the NBC yeah. adaptation did that as well. Like very explicitly, they had Lucy be straight out in love with Mina. Like that was part of her arc, um, and I thought it was a a nice way to like sort of dig into some of that queer subtext, even though we knew it wasn't going to end well for her because it's Lucy, and we all know what happens to Lucy and and Dracula. But um, they did sort of dig into that subtext, and also they cast Katie McGrath as Lucy and that she's one of my favorite actresses ever. So I was like, I'm here for this. And that was the Jonathan Reese Myers Dracula yeah, adaptation, right? I think it only had one season. So um, I remember watching it, but I didn't, I couldn't get into it. Yeah. It wasn't great on the whole, but some of it was like really interesting. I was like, it's fun that you're doing slightly different things, even if some of it's the same. But is there any uh, are there any other Dracula adaptations that you've dug into either for your analysis or uh, just for fun that you have any comments on? Um, obviously, the most recent one was the BBC one with I think it was Stephen Moffat that did it, and oh boy, did I have opinions about that! <laughs> um, oh, let's hear them. We <laughs> want to know. I personally wasn't a fan. Although there was three episodes because they are very prone to like big long movie length episodes, which I think is an interesting way to do it. Um, and the second one was great because it tackled like a, a section of the book that you very rarely see adapted, um, which is Dracula's journey to England on a ship called the Demeter. And it's great, like the whole section in the book reads like a slasher because it's just about this ship's crew getting picked off one by one by Dracula as he crosses the sea. So to see it adapted, it was like genuinely some really great horror in there because it was just like a, a period slasher. And I was like, I'm having a great time with this one. But then for some reason at the end of that episode, they made it modern day. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. So I just felt like it was a very confused way of telling the story because it sort of tried to blend 
the true period adaptation with something more modernized and I was surprised that they took it in that direction. I haven't seen um that adaptation myself, but then I just saw here that um Morphid Clark plays Mina and uh, I loved Saint Maud. It was a really interesting film. So um oh, the, and I haven't had it's a also a queer horror film. Very much a queer horror film. And I had actually just <laughs> I just I just wrote a review on it. Um, but usually I try to keep mine, especially if it's a recent film, non-spoiler. Yeah. Um, related, like nothing you wouldn't get out of the trailer <laughs> kind of situation. Yeah, for sure. And then just my opinion. So, um, but yeah, no, I'm going to have to dig into this, even if it's not the greatest, just to kind of get a sense of um, what it is. Have you watched the um, Shudder? Well, I guess actually that's not Dracula, that's Nosferatu. Uh, yeah, um, but it's also like Nos the 42. same origin. Like, yeah, I guess. it's still vampires. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, just, yeah, have you watched that? Because it's on my list and I haven't seen it yet. I haven't either, but I've heard a couple of people talk about it and it sounds interesting. I'll have to take a look at it. I get so behind on things like Shudder Originals. Cause I'm like, oh, it's oh. really hard. It's hard to keep up. There's just so much stuff coming out Which is at great. all moments I in time. so much then- coming out. But- <laughs> yeah, every time that there's news, because I follow, you know, all the news that's coming out of like Dread Central, Fangoria, Room Org, and I'm like, okay, and I bookmark things so I can go and like add them to my watch list and watch for them to come out. And then uh, obviously the last year release dates for things keep changing. So... It goes back and forth, but I'm curious, like, how did you discover your love of horror? Like, are you a horror lover? You're a horror lover in general, yeah? Yeah, for sure. Um, In terms of, like, literature, since that's my field, a high school teacher gave me Dracula when I was, like, 11 and was like, I think I'd like this. And I don't know what she saw in me that that was what she thought I would like. But she a lot was... to unpack at 11. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. But she was right and I flew through it and loved it. But even when I was younger, the BBC had a show called Being Human, which objectively probably isn't I love Being now. Human. Yeah. So I watched that probably younger than I should have been and was just obsessed with it, like everything about it. And I think that kind of... It's one of those things that kind of stuck with me and I've rewatched it recently and I'm like, this is still an excellent time. Like I'm having a great time with all of this. So I think that kind of kickstarted a lot of it. And then just I think the first horror film I saw was Alien. And it's just incredible. It's just an incredible film. I was so obsessed with that and with Ripley. And then Jaws and when Jurassic I just Park. Given, uh, so Alien is a huge one for me. And uh, we I've recently talked about it and done a um, uh, review episode. It's not out yet. It's coming out this month. But we actually talked about Alien and we went into the queer subtext of the film because it's a very queer film. Um, and I had to ask myself after watching it for the 25th some odd, you know, time like is this film queer like it totally is and Ripley's very much a non-binary character and I I love that and she's one of my favorites in terms of um final girls um yeah but yeah that's a fantastic great. one she's <laughs> for, just great and then uh, getting into horror sort of um extra sides 
Karen information about um, uh, Lambert in the first one, and yes, she's mm-hmm. trans, and that was never really brought up until you saw. Well, of... I wish they'd gone a little more into it, other yeah. than the quick flash on the screen in Aliens, um, yeah, or that too. it actually got brought up during the first film. I like that it was worked in there in some way, but the entire film has a lot of gender non-conforming characters, um, including the xenomorph. Too. Yeah, the xenomorph is a big one, and I think lots of people have talked about it, but I think it's so interesting and definitely gender non-conforming with all of it especially with Ripley and like her whole arc is kind of about motherhood and all that that entails but it's it's not exactly the most pleasant description of motherhood I've ever seen <laughs> like the whole thing is very intense um well is Dracula your favorite novel then What's what's your favorite horror novel as a literature buff? Oh, that's such a hard question. It's definitely up there. Um, The Haunting of Hill House as well is just great. Uh, I love Shirley Jackson's work. She's wonderful. I just wrote an article all about it. (laughs) So yeah, it's a great one. Um, Shirley Jackson is just a magnificent um, storyteller, especially within the horror genre, horror thrillers and, and mysteries and things like that. And um, she's fascinating, and there's a biopic on her on Hulu that I'm uh, waiting to dig into. So, yeah. um, and like I know not everyone who liked Shirley Jackson's Haunted Hill House was a fan of the TV show adaptation, but I really loved it. So that kind of always sticks out to me when I think about horror adaptations. Because for all it wasn't totally faithful for the text, I think it stayed quite close to like a lot of the the themes for me personally. So I enjoyed that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Definitely with the the ghost as the metaphor as well, and then yet another queer horror uh, project with the Theodora character. So, yeah. and, um, I just, and I, I like that they Theo. stayed true to that and really brought Theo to the surface for that um, adaptation. I think Mike Flanagan did a great job as well as Kate Siegel. So yeah, and then obviously they did Bly Manor, and that had um, Danny and Jamie, and I thought that was beautiful, less scary than Hill House. I I was of the opinion but in terms of like a gothic story i thought it was just beautiful i cried a lot at the end <laughs> yeah i definitely cried in the final episode as well um do you have a favorite um like queer horror film mm. jennifer's body is always a favorite for me even though it's just absolute high camp like everything about it is so off the wall um but along sort of similar themes but in a more serious vein, Raw recently I saw, and I loved Raw. I thought Raw oh, was yes. great. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's um, a really good one. Why, why did that one stand out to you specifically? I don't know. I like this. I'm very fascinated about the idea of monstrosity and all that that entails. So I think you kind of see that when my favorites come up. So things like Raw, Ginger Schnaps, uh, Jennifer's Body, all of these ideas of especially like female characters coming to terms with like coming of age stories but framed through this lens of monstrosity I think they're just it's such a a cool way to explore all the sort of complex feelings that come with that sort of age and that sort of experience so I kind of gravitate to those a lot yeah and for body horror films they're very interesting i think they all do a very different take on body horror as well in the way that they explore it and femininity yeah um, as well as sort of feminist uh 
films. Um, I was curious in terms of raw, I don't know, I don't know how, how, how feminist of a film that is, but, um, you know, how do you feel about the queer representation in the film? I don't know. I'm always, I'm always careful when I think about what I consider to be bad queer rep because I don't, I don't like, um, sort of policing what stories come out of queer representation because I think it's great that we can have a range of different stories now um like I, I don't always want everything well, to be you know and going to that point there's a lot of people that have said um despite many people arguing that like the queer representation in um A Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's Revenge is like problematic representation yet other people you know within the queer community that love horror they're like that's that's one of my favorite queer film queer horror films and I was like yeah tell me why I want to know because they're then debunking this idea that um has been widely talked about and written about um with it being super problematic and then going back to um like Scream Queen uh, my Nightmare on Elm Street, if you watch that documentary, the yeah. um, lead actor himself has a lot of feelings about it. So it's <laughs> it's an interesting thing to get into. Yeah, and I think um, it is very complex, like everything, because the whole community isn't going to have a, a single opinion. It wouldn't be a collection of people if we didn't differ and things like that. But the idea of queer people specifically finding power in the figure of the monster for me is is very interesting because obviously initially um queerness as a monstrosity was created to villainize and to other queer people but to see it reclaimed by people who are queer is is pretty radical actually like I think it's a, a really interesting way to sort of deconstruct this system of thought and be like well no, actually, I take power in this because that's what you've thought I am. So for me to identify with it now is pretty powerful. So I can I can see why a lot of people would gravitate to these films and kind of take hold of those figures. And it's, it's I think it's pretty cool to see people reclaim the figure of the monster, even though I know it's not for everyone. But I think having those range of experiences and, and stories is, is super cool because there was a time where we wouldn't have gotten that. So I think to sort of try and limit it into one box now, now that there's a, a chance to expand is probably a mistake. Like sometimes I just, I want to see monstrous queer films and sometimes I want like what people would consider like very good rep. So... <laughs> I don't know. I like to have a, a variety of options at my disposal. Yeah, I would agree. And despite, um, I guess, Jesse turning into Freddy or sort of becoming the monster, which I think a lot of people take issue with in terms of um, the queer villain trope, right? Um, is that I don't think Jesse really is the monster in that film. He's being overtaken by the monster, but he himself is not. Yeah, um, I would agree. The monster, in my opinion. No, I think I would <laughs> so, agree with that. That's yeah, I much um, for us, it. it's yeah. <laughs> like, wait, Jesse, we love you. Um, and then for Raw, um, like we were talking about, um, just the film in general. Are there any themes within the film that really stood out to you? It's a great film. It's a very it's a film about cannibalism, so it's, it's it can be a tough watch. Um, and I think the way they went about it was really interesting and what they're exploring. 
um, within the film, but I'd love to get more of your thoughts on it. Yeah, it's just, I think it was a great film and just very, very well made and everything about it to me stood out as something that I appreciated a lot. But I do think a lot of the time, for me, it comes back to, I don't know, the whole sort of coming of age, almost puberty sort of experience of this girl is away from her comfort zone and she's changing in ways that aren't always palatable to herself or to other people. And I I think for me, that's the sort of experience I can relate to, not in the sense of cannibalism, I will hasten to ask. But yeah, the cannibalism is just a metaphor, of course. So, which is but, great. Like, it's like it's a harsh metaphor, but I yeah. think that's what's really intriguing about it too. Is really taking it to a kind of a very dark, scary place. Totally. Um, but it makes you pay attention, right? But um, as as this concept of sort of moving away from what you've known and realizing that actually something's different about you and has always been different about you. And that sort of sort of coming to terms with that and all the sort of sometimes very scary things that can entail. Um, I think that kind of stood out to me as something that is a sort of relatable experience in terms of the themes of it. Who are your favorite queer storytellers? Um, so I mentioned her earlier, but Jewel Gomez, who wrote The Gilda Stories, is wonderful um the girl stories is a book about a young black girl who is turned into vampire and adopted by this sort of little clan of female vampires and it tracks her life from i think it's like the early 1800s through to 2050 so it kind of goes into the realm of sci-fi near the end which was super fun but these sort of snapshots of a a long life surrounded by lots of different people were beautiful and super super well done um even through to like portions in the 80s where she's forming communities and and trying to come to terms with that and I tackled that a lot in my thesis because Gilda who is the main vampire in the story surrounds herself with humans for a lot of the the book to the point where other vampires kind of intervene and they're like, you have to remember you aren't one of them, even if you want to be. And that kind of led into the idea of differing communities and how they can kind of intersect, but it's not always going to be a perfect match. And I used that a lot for the idea of homonormativity and trying to assimilate, because Gilda does for a lot of it try to assimilate into human society and fall into step with it. And by the end, she's realised that not only does it not really work all the time, it leads to a lot of hurt for her. Especially as a vampire, she outlives a lot of her friends. She's constantly feeling like she has to hide part of herself. And she comes to the realisation that perhaps surrounding herself with other vampires is a better way to go forward. So I thought that was a very interesting sort of like treatise on how communities work um, especially with like intersecting marginalised identities with Gilda being black and everything about it was just beautiful, it was super well written I enjoyed it a lot so yeah definitely Joe Gomez is up there 
Awesome. I actually haven't read that series. It's a series of novels, correct? I know it's just one novel. And it's just one novel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I haven't read it. So I'm going to put it on my reading list. It's um, so it's thank you for the recommendation. I, I'm really interested to dive into it. Um, do you identify with any queer characters in horror? Is there any in particular that have stood out or had an impact on you? Um, I think there's definitely a lot of characters that have stood out to me as ones that I identify with. I've mentioned her already, but Theo from Hill House stood out to me a lot. I, I really, I really liked her. Um, and I could see a lot of myself in her. Um, and I think, I think nowadays it's maybe a slightly more controversial film for several very good reasons. But I remember watching Black Swan when I was young. I, again, younger than I should have been. And Nina and that stood out to me. And um, for all that a lot of the queerness is a metaphor in Black Swan, but this idea of Nina's repression and the struggle she has to sort of marry different parts of her identity to one another and this sort of perfectionism that she is constantly seeking. Yeah, a lot of a lot of those themes stood out to me. Are there any other characters that you've just absolutely loved or really hated in uh, horror film adaptations or novels or uh, anything like that? I'm kind of <laughs> curious. Who? What have you not liked? <laughs> oh, for all it's a classic, I, I struggle with Silence of the Lambs still to this day. Like I have, I, I've watched it because of it's a cornerstone, but Silence of the Lambs to me is not something I often return to just because I think more than anything for all I'm I'm not a big fan of classifying things as problematic um it it sticks out to me because it it feels quite insidious and I understand why there was so much backlash against it at the time so I can I can definitely see the issues with that and it's not it's not a favorite of mine yeah I think that um the story in and of itself, I uh, think is good, but that's because I'm a true crime nerd. <laughs> um, but uh, obviously the character of Buffalo Bill, it can be problematic. And I think just the way that it's more it goes back to the queer villain trope. Right. Um, and this idea that somehow his um, or excuse me, uh, their um, identity and uh uh, the cross-dressing and perhaps being a trans uh, identifying as a transsexual somehow pushed them into this um, villainy of being someone who abducts women and like takes their skin and makes a skin suit. Right. So, which is um, I think using queerness as the reason for deviant behavior is the problem. Yeah. Um, like I absolutely don't mind queer villains. I think queer villains are very interesting and have their place still. Um, and I don't want to, Right. I think it's without using their queerness as the motive yeah, for their villainy. Exactly. Right? It's like That's queer the big villains problem. are great, but people who are villains because they're queer, I think is different for me because I'm like, okay, right. but why? I think there's a great example. I think one example, I just watched a newer film recently. Um, so a queer horror film that I recently watched, it came out in 2018. And I thought that this was really good uh, representation. They, this couple, they just happen to be a queer couple. Um, mm-hmm. And there is a queer villain, but um, it's not due to their queerness. It's called What Keeps You Alive. 
Um, It's a lesbian couple that goes to a like a cabin in the woods for the weekend kind of thing. Um, I personally really liked it. Other people had a lot of negative opinions about it, but um, I think it plays out just like any other similar story. They just happen to be queer. Yeah. And I, I really like films like that where I'm like, I, you could replace this with a heterosexual couple and the story would likely play out in a very similar way because for all I think a lot of times queerness does set people apart and and changes how we experience things sometimes it just doesn't sometimes things are just similar and I like sort of seeing evidence that um, I don't know like um, it's just being told like any other story would be yeah I have to agree Um, there is a question that sort of comes up for me because I talk with um, other friends uh when we talk about queer horror and kind of the academics behind it we talk about the haze code system a lot so um i know i've mentioned it but the haze code system of film censorship and its general principles section that outlines ways in which the system uh, is meant to protect audiences from sympathizing with the side of crime wrongdoing evil or sin is where we often see villains in horror um, being queer coded characters like even now like and and buffalo bill is a great example of that um so why do you believe that queer characters are still often antagonists or seemingly added as afterthoughts with little character development or, or substance in horror films? I think a lot of it probably does go back to that as like a sort of tradition of film. And I think a lot of times people rely on that traditional language of film without realizing where that comes from. So it's very easy to lean in a trope and be like, a lot of villains have this without thinking about it and being like but a lot of villains have this because they're being for example queer coded and it just wasn't said because of the Hayes codes so I think a lot of the time I don't know if it's always intentional queer coding sometimes it definitely is and that's definitely a choice that people make but sometimes I think it's become part of a film language that people don't always understand the origin of which in itself is a little bit yikes because it would be nice for more people to be aware of where that's come from. You'd hope it was taught in film studies class, right? Yeah, you would think so. (laughs) I mean, a lot of people are independent filmmakers. They didn't go to school for film. I think that's totally fine and great. Why go and owe a lot of money at the end of school to make um, amazing films or independent films or some incredible horror shorts that I've come across. But you're right. Like a lot of it is a lack of uh, understanding and education, I think, not necessarily someone um, trying to be harmful in how they represent queer people on film. It's unfortunate that often comes off that way. And I think especially if you're an independent filmmaker, it would pay to even if you're not going to go to like film studies class, because I don't think you always need to, but to do sort of the research and the history of the medium you're using. Um, But even in things like early literature, you see a lot of queer coding and villains. And oftentimes, again, it was used as a shorthand for this character is deviant and therefore harmful. But also you see a lot of it where actually the more likely suspect is often internalized homophobia Um, right yeah especially things like 
early gothics like Dorian Gray and even to an extent Dracula there was a lot of rumours with Bram Stoker um, and a lot of the time you wonder if it's something that these authors are subconsciously processing about themselves or their own experiences and a lot of the time that manifests in their fears becoming part of their work so I think that's also very interesting especially with older texts um, because that's obviously where it's more common. Yeah, and I think um, when I look at a filmmaker like James Whale, for example, who is the person who, behind a lot of the universal monster horror films, um, and these are incredible films that we still love to this day. Frankenstein is a staple of course. right, within the horror community, um, and he was openly gay throughout his career, and mm-hmm. it was super unusual for the 1920s and 30s, um, and once people learned more about his sexual orientation and it became more widely known, um, it then we're like, okay, well, is The Bride of Frankenstein in particular more of a queer horror film. And I would say there's a really interesting subtext there between, um, I think it's uh, Dr. Frankenstein and his assistant. Um, but um, yeah, there, people talk about, well, there's a lot of um, queer subtext in in his films. And um, some people think that his uh, refusal to remain in the closet during that time period is what ended his career. And I think that's obviously unfortunate, but I'm very glad that he was able to infuse some of who he was into his films and that we get some of that representation in these older horror films today. Yeah, and I think that's... uh, James Will, to me, is such an interesting figure and I think it is wonderful that he refused to remain in the closet even though it is obviously terrible that there's suspicion that it ended his career because, you know, the homophobia of it all... God, he was a, he was making films during like I think prime Hayes Code era. Um, because when did it start here? Let's see. I'm trying to go back <laughs> and remember. I know it ended around the 1960s. Um, but I think it started as far back as that, even if it wasn't put into paper. Yeah, I'm sure it's in the 30s. It sort of started. Yeah, okay, um, so around the time, like, Frankenstein came out in 1931. Yeah, and I think even before, like, that, before it was put to paper, there was probably a lot of discussion and judgment about what was suitable to put to film. So it's not surprising to me that a lot of the sort of queer rep in those films comes in the form of subtext, because really what choice was there? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. The subtext was sort of put in there, um, I, whether intentional or unintentional. It was part of it was because you couldn't do certain things on film or talk about them. So um, I just think it's so interesting. Um, the history of the Hayes Code is very fascinating to me, um, but I don't know how it affected uh, literature throughout that time period or if it was because it's meant for film specifically yeah. um, um, it's difficult because for as long as there's been literature there's always been subtext of that kind sort of even if it hasn't been intentional there's definitely always ways to do readings where that subtext is apparent um, a lot of the stuff I work with is sort of early gothic so you will see a lot of like late 1800s but even then, the subtext there is very sort of similar to what you see during Hayes Code era filmmaking. Uh, a lot of the shorthand is very similar. 
So it's very interesting to me the way that those two sort of mediums probably informed each other to some way. Like the way that literature was used to create queer subtext likely informed the way that films then created queer subtext. So I think that to me is a very interesting relationship. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. Well, um, I, I'm curious, uh, we didn't dig into it too much earlier on, but um, what projects are you working on and do you have anything coming up we need to be on the lookout for? Uh, at the minute, I'm in the middle of a master's degree, so that's very fun. Um, I have a couple of things going out on social media and things, just blog posts, keeping up with writing and analysing while I'm doing all of that. But actually at the minute I'm focusing on moving into cross-media studies and I want to start analysing sort of horror aspects in comic books, which is something a little bit different, um, but very interesting for me because I've, I've been a fan of comics for all my life and I think it's an interesting take. I love comics and I'm a horror comic collector so um, yeah I'd really love to you know talk more about that as you dig into it um, for sure but um, Rebecca thank you so much for coming on Slay Away and chatting queer horror with me I really appreciate it and it's been great to have you. Yeah thank you very much for having me it's been great. (laughs) You're so welcome I hope to maybe have you back sometime to review a horror film or maybe a book. Yeah totally I'd be down for that. Thanks for gathering around the campfire listeners. Come Slay Away with us next time and be sure to follow at Slay Away Radio on Twitter and Facebook.